0: My guest on today's show is Michael Sembalist, the chairman of market and investment strategy for JP Morgan Asset and Wealth Management, a global industry leader with $2 trillion of client assets under management. Michael is also a member of the Investment Committee for J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management and the Investment Committee for the J.P. Morgan Retirement Plan that covers the firm's 250,000 employees. Before taking on his current seat in 2012, he spent eight years as Chief Investment Officer of J.P. Morgan's powerhouse Global Private Bank. Prior to his work on the buy side, Michael worked on the sell side at J.P. Morgan Securities as Head Strategist for Emerging Markets Fixed Income. He started his 30-year tenure at the firm as a member of the corporate finance division. Our wide-ranging conversation begins with Michael's early career that included watching a financial crisis unfold in the late 80s and sidestepping another in the late 90s, and then turns to his role as CIO of a large global private bank. We discuss differences in asset allocation and implementation between private clients and institutions, and along the way, come across his evaluation of Bernie Madoff, the creation of his strategy piece, Eye on the Market, the chart that everyone hates, the impact of politics, government debt, and energy on the markets, and views about active management. Lastly, you won't want to miss an amazing story Michael tells in answer to a new closing question. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Sembalis. You've been at J.P. Morgan for a long time, and it would just be great to hear how you got here in the first place, where you started, and let's take it from there.
1: It was a circuitous journey for sure. I was a French and Russian literature major in college and language, and I decided to join J.P. Morgan Chase when I realized that I didn't want to spend most of my life living in an apartment with a bathtub on four legs, uh, which most, <laughs> of my, most of the people I knew were doing. So I joined J.P. Morgan in 1987. When in 87, About two weeks before the crash. So yeah. early October 1987. And I worked in in the internal finance department, but eventually worked my way into the front office in the emerging markets area, and one of my first jobs was to work on the structuring of all, uh, to work out of all the uh, Brady Bonds. So I structured the first pre-Brady Bond, which was called a Mexican-Aztec Bond, which had a rolling interest guarantee.
0: And so to bring that through, I mean, I, I remember it at the time, but why don't you describe what the Brady Bond was and what it was solving for? Well,
1: the banking industry had been lending wave after wave of capital unsuccessfully to Latin America. Commodity prices were falling and productivity improvements were scarce and eventually... JP Morgan and Lou Preston and people like that realized that we were just going to be trapped in a cycle of renegotiating the terms around extending debt forever that people couldn't pay. So the idea was to do substantial debt haircuts, but then allow these countries to take the little bit of liquidity that they had to buy long-duration zero-coupon bonds so that investors took exposure to the country with respect to the interest payments, but had collateralized maturities and help stabilize the region. And I remember we were in a pretty good capital position then, and, and when we wrote off a lot of that debt, Walter Riston and John Reed and the leadership
0: at, at Citigroup
1: were pretty upset because they felt that J.P. Morgan was setting a standard that some of the other banks couldn't meet.
0: So those are early days in emerging markets. Yeah. And what happened from there? So you're involved in the first Brady Bond creation, named after Nicholas Brady. If I remember right, the principal was backed by the U.S.,
1: They purchased long-duration U.S. zero-coupon bonds. They being? These countries, right? So Mexico would spend money, at times their own, at times borrowed from the IMF, to buy long-duration zero-coupons. And so when the holder of a Mexican loan entered into restructuring, they would have to take a write-off that was fairly substantial, but the security they got back had a lot more durable value. So you would exchange $100 of an uncollateralized Mexican security in exchange for security that was worth maybe 70 or 75 cents on the dollar. So you would take a 25% hit. But you didn't have to worry about a subsequent round of restructuring, because at least the principal at that point was backed by a US government security. So it did help stabilize the entire region. And some of the countries in emerging asia did it as well you know examples being the philippines
0: so you got thrown in in your first days in the business yes into a crisis right how did that impact how you think about the world you develop a very healthy
1: skepticism of people that are <laughs> that put themselves out there as knowing what they're talking about because this was basically late 80s early 90s you had a simultaneous collapse of the banking system lending process to latin america and also the SNL crisis in the United States and a lot of bad investment decisions that were made in the aftermath of the 1986 tax bill. So you just you developed as a young person a healthy skepticism for theories that fit on cocktail napkins. You know, For example, Walter Riston was famous for saying, well, lending to countries is better than companies because countries can't default. They have infinite power of taxation. Yes, they do until they decide not to exercise it. And so all of these kind of cocktail napkin theories tend to fall apart. And so one of the very interesting things that I worked on at the same time was a bunch of insurance company demutualizations, where you had a bunch of mutual insurance companies that had Horrible returns in their investment portfolio, and they basically had to demutualize and raise money and buy the policy ownership back from the policyholders. And so, seeing all of that stuff crumble at the same time made me realize that some of the simple rules of thumb people were applying didn't make sense. On the other hand, it also made me realize what an oversold investment opportunity looks like because I worked on some of the RTC restructurings with Bill Seedman in the early 90s, you know, when I was at JP Morgan. And, in 1994, after the Mexican peso devaluation, you couldn't sell a peso-denominated asset or a dollar-denominated asset with exposure to Mexico to anybody. And over the subsequent decade, all sorts of Mexican-denominated assets were among the best-performing assets you could
0: buy. When you think back and how you describe your role, you were working in emerging markets. You were working in some significant global restructuring efforts. Now you're talking about the RTC, which is a U.S. real estate-focused What was your function as a young person?
1: J.P. Morgan was going through some interesting and difficult times. When I joined the firm in 1987, it was still basically a commercial bank that made a lot of its money by lending its balance sheet to investor-grade companies like GE. And over the subsequent five years with the development of the capital markets, an enormous amount of J.P. Morgan's core businesses went away and the firm had to reinvent itself on the fly in derivatives and asset management and M&A, and did so with varying degrees of success. The most notable successes being credit derivatives and fixed income derivatives, trading and structuring, and one of the more notable struggles was the inability to develop a bulge back at equity underwriting business, and which I'm not sure if we ever made it past eight or seven on the, on the depth charts there. But I was an analyst, right? we had these pool of corporate finance analysts. And I was one of those analysts that was available for hire or rent, however you want to phrase it. And I was in that pool. And once you work on a couple of good projects and develop good modeling skills, there's demand for you for the next one. So that's how I got to work on things like that.
0: And so when you got through that initial program, what was your next step? In 1994, I joined the emerging markets
1: division full time. And that was kind of the heyday of sales, trading, and research on emerging markets. I mean, if you were underwriting a Mexican government bond, you could still get paid a a point and a half to two points in underwriting fees. Now you don't do it for anything except leave cable credit, and there's no fees. But then there was a lot of action in terms of sales, trading, and research in emerging markets. And so I was the head strategist for the emerging markets sell-side business. And that lasted a couple of years, and now you have crisis number two, 1998. Yes, and so a couple of things happened around that point in time that were interesting. I hinted to my wife that I might have to mention this. So my wife Rachel ran Latin American Capital Markets for JP Morgan at the time, and I was the head strategist. And Nick Rowan, who was running the business at the time, Felix's son, you know, made it clear that it was it was uncomfortable to have two people at a senior level, who were married to each other, and someone had mentioned to me that it wasn't that they were concerned about us exchanging information, because we had signed a a document with the head of the legal, Ned Kelly, who eventually went to 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 decided that we wouldn't share information, but somebody saw me feeding her applesauce in the lunchroom, and it made them ill. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, I went home one day, intending to talk to Rachel about which one of us would have to move, and she told me... You know, tomorrow morning at 8 30, you have an interview with the asset management business with Ramon de Oliveira. Good luck. So she figured that one out before I did. That. And that's one of the impetuses for me joining the buy side. So in the fall of 1997, I moved from being the head strategist on the sell side to being responsible for the firm's buy side investments in emerging markets. And so I was only there for three months before I saw this constellation of fixed exchange rates, collapsing commodity prices, et cetera, et cetera, and was sitting on a portfolio of 6 to $7 billion worth of exposures to emerging market countries and companies like Indonesian T-shirt companies. And in the summer – in May, June, July of 1998, I sold five out of that six billion. Wow, so you had the keys to make that decision and implement. So yeah, I I bailed. And some of that money was direct money that that was invested with us. And some of it was asset allocation money that I had control over because it was
0: allocated from other multi-strategy products. So you are months into your first buy side seat. You see a problem and you immediately react and make what some would say is a, a pretty big move. Yes. In terms of selling. Which and there were I'm and sure there was was people that were uncomfortable with the magnitude and the speed of, with which the team and I came to that decision. But, in the moment. Yep. A couple months later, it yeah. looked great. Do you ever look back and say part of the reason you were able to do that was you weren't as knowledgeable about the risks of being wrong in, such a, in a move like that?
1: Maybe. I, I think ultimately in emerging markets – there, there are less so now than there used to be, and, and the 2014 to 2016 episode in emerging markets was really the first one that was controlled. But before then, you know, you 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 had countries that were extremely reliant on foreign capital. You also had Boris Yeltsin as the leader of the Russian Federation at the time, and the bottom line was the fundamentals were awful for the same reasons. We warned our clients aggressively away from everything having to do with Puerto Rico, you know, in, in 2014 or wherever they did that long term debt placement because the fundamentals are awful. So uh, yeah, I didn't really worry that much about it and knew that, you know, if I would have to bear some consequences if I was wrong. The next big challenge, by the way, if you remember, was Russia defaulted in August, and then you had the long term capital restructuring. And I looked like a genius for a couple months. But because of what was going on in the U.S. tech sector, risk assets all started rising again by the following January. So in the fourth quarter of 1998, we were buying back most of what we sold much more quickly than we thought we would wow. have to. Yeah. So we still benefited from that decision, but not nearly as much as you would think. Disposing of 85% of a emerging market portfolio three months before you know, the, the Russia LTM crisis.
0: It is one of those things whenever someone's tasked with making a significant move or a call, it's actually two. You have to decide when to get out right. and then you have to decide when to get back in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And did you have a framework at the time for th- other, other than you saw the writing on the wall? You saw problems. Maybe that was colored by, hey, your first months in the business was a crisis. So you knew what that looked like. Yeah. Did you have a framework for saying, how do I get back in? Well, some of it was price, right? Some of it was
1: just watching how quickly some of the prices were rebounding. But the coalition of banks that agreed to the restructuring terms on long-term capital, that whole process happened a lot faster than the processes I had seen a decade before when I joined the firm. And that was a signal that the industry had learned that when you make a giant mistake, you got to write it off and move on. And the best thing to do is put issuers back
0: in in at least the possibility of being solvent. So you've made this great call in the first time in the seat. And what was different switching to the buy side, being in that seat from what you expected it would be from your lens on the sell side before? I don't
1: know that it was that different because I got a pretty good look at what the buy side was like from the sell side. And I was one of the earlier people that made that transition. And there was a flood of people that came after. But I enjoyed it and I enjoyed the the responsibility and being able to talk to multiple different people and and get multiple points of information. Working as a fiduciary for client assets is very liberating compared to the shackles of working on the sell side and having to tow the party line
0: in a lot of ways that are pleasant and unpleasant. Do you think that's similar today from when it was back when you were on the sell side of the business? Oh, I
1: think I think those dynamics are, have roughly stayed the same. If anything, there's even more pressure now for people that manage money to act as fiduciaries and not, and avoid conflict of interest, whereas the sell side is kind of inextricably it only has its own self-interest, right? So there are some minor changes where people have to send out multiple copies of research, and there's MiFID and stuff like that, but you know the bottom line is you work for the shareholders on the sell side, and on the buy side, you work for the shareholders, but first come the capital providers that people gave you money you know pensioners, endowments foundations, sovereign wealth funds, individuals doesn 't matter
0: and how different do you think is the, the structure of an asset manager? who has those two masters. So you have the people who have given you money, but then you also have shareholders of the public company. And there are other now a lot more public company asset managers, particularly in the alternative space than there used to be, than the independent asset manager.
1: Ultimately, the nice thing about our business, I mean, all you have to know and think about is look compare the process by which the II analysts are picked, which is a like high school popularity contest, more or less, with the way people are rewarded on the buy side, which is Lipper and Morningstar rate you on your performance and the flows follow. And sometimes there's return chasing on the buy side, which is bad. And there's a lot of ways to try to manage around that. But the bottom line is the buy side on a scale of one to 10 is a meritocracy is an eight. And the sell side is maybe a two or a three.
0: So after a few years in that seat, you evolved to being CIO of the private bank. Yes. How did that transition happen in your career? I was managing money for J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and
1: the J.P. Morgan Private Bank at the time was a closed shop, which meant it only distributed J.P. Morgan Asset Management products. And by the time you got to 2001 and the tech collapse was happening, the the client base of the buy side started asking a lot of tough questions. Did you get this wrong because you had an honest view? Or did you get this wrong because you were trapped as a distribution agent for one asset management firm? And so the entire industry was forced through this reckoning where asset management firms had to be rebuilt. And I saw an interesting opportunity there. And I had a lot of respect for Mary Erdos, who has been... My boss since then, so I've worked for Mary, you know, for over fifteen years, and she came in and started the process of rebuilding the J.P. Morgan Private Bank, and I was her deputy and on a lot of things related
0: to strategy and investments. And so, when you looked at that initial strategy, so it was back in two thousand and one, yeah. with this lens of okay, something has to change from this closed model. Yes, what were the first steps you took? There was only one: convincing senior management
1: that if we open the platform, that we will earn less fees on certain assets because you're distributing other people's funds but that the dramatic increase in trust on the part of the clients will reward you with many more assets so that in the long run you have a much more sustainable and profitable business and i would say that took about that was a two to three year process to get people comfortable that what we were going to do is use whatever managers will use jp morgan if they're good we'll use third party if they're good And we'll just set it up and we'll call it like we see it. And we'll have a a mini divorce between the private bank and the asset management business, uh, at least to kind of establish an arm's length basis for those relationships. And it worked exactly the way that we anticipated that it would in that we had massive growth because ultimately, private clients reward returns and trust in equal measure. Why did it take two to three years? It took two to three years because you're trying to change a business that had only operated with a certain business model of, in its entire existence, which in terms of the JP Morgan private bank, might as you might as well say is 150 years, right? So it takes time to do that. And remember, you're also, by the time you're in 2002 and 2003, you're spending a lot of time. Cleaning up the wreckage from Enron, Adelphia, Tyco, Global Crossing, there's a lot of postmortems going on because a lot of the investment models that asset managers and private banks were using that are heavily based on value got caught in some of these value traps and weren't at all accounting for you know quality of management, board oversight, and all sorts of other things and fraud. So, which are tied to the other two. So there was a a simultaneous reckoning of how should our stock selection process incorporate and try to elevate the importance of some of these corporate governance issues. So there were a lot of things that were trying to be fixed at the same time. And it was, if you remember, you had a 40% collapse in the equity market. It hadn't happened since the Great Depression. And the NBER couldn't even really figure out if there was a recession in 2001. They went back and forth. So it was a very, very odd time because we were all picking up the pieces of an equity collapse that was really, for the most part, unrelated to the performance of the U.S. economy. It had everything to do with risk-taking and not even so much leverage. It was just ridiculous risk-taking and and valuations. I remember when J.P. Morgan was a smaller firm, before the merger with Chase and Bank One, there would be MD meetings each year. and I think it was 1999. It was either 1999 or 2000, but early 2000, right? So before the bloom came off the rose. And the annual MD meetings, the chairman at the time invited a couple of CEOs to come and talk. And I'm blanking on the name of this company, but when you typed its name into Bloomberg, there was no description, like the company doesn't have a business model yet. And so, even JP Morgan as a firm Got sucked into the notion that people that were running a business model with no profits or definition or business plan were the right people to come and address a gathering of the firm's managing directors, and so that that was was a
0: confusing time. That was a sign that people had, had kind of lost their minds. So you get through this two or three year process, and and one of the you know a lot of the conversations I have are with CIOs of a single pool of capital. They're serving effectively one client. It might be an endowment, a foundation, a family. You're sitting in a CIO seat at this point in time of a private bank, yeah. which is a type of client, but many, many different constituents. Yeah. How do you think about how you bring your investment beliefs to the table? How they can impact effectively a diverse group of clients? Sure. In some ways, it makes your life easier because if
1: all of the clients that came to you had the same investment objectives, you would run out of ideas and liquidity in the market to implement everything. So it's actually helpful to have clients that come to us saying, I just want capital preservation. I worked my whole life, I sold my business, I made a hundred million dollars and here are my objectives: capital preservation and living off the income, et cetera, et cetera. And then another client that comes in and says, "No, you know, this particular account is on behalf of a Delaware trust, which has generations of future beneficiaries, and I have a high risk profile, and you know, show me what you got." To family endowments and foundations, which say, "Well, for tax purposes, I have to make." at least 5%, because there's a mandatory 5% distribution for foundations, and you know I I want to structure the portfolio around that objective. So you get a lot of people wanting to do a lot of different things. Then, of course, there are clients in different parts of the world, right? About 60% of the private bank is in revenue, or AUM is domestic, and 40% is international. So we're a big international firm. Brazilian, Saudi, and Malaysian clients have, at times, different objectives. They've got payables domestically. You have clients that don't want to double up in their portfolio with the risks that they already have. For instance, if they're in the tech, financial, or consumer discretionary space. So you learn very quickly how to become one of those diners in the city that has like a 45-page menu. (laughs) And you wonder if anybody ever orders some of the stuff on there, but you get good at doing that. And your role as the CIO, how does that plug into... A menu that can include everything. There's an investment committee, right? So we do everything except security selection, right? So we're picking, do we like growth versus value? Do we want to do an ETF or do we want to spend some risk on active management? What do we want to do in terms of duration exposure? Do we want to hedge our euro exposures or not? Do we think commodities have a place in the portfolio? What do we think about timber? How do we think about hedge funds for clients that are taxable versus non-taxable because hedge funds generate enormous amounts of short-term capital gains and ordinary income? So- the average manager of a college endowment has a certain degree of freedom in making asset allocation ours was much higher because we had to incorporate issues around domicile taxation and suitability and so the chief investment officer is is responsible for all of that and you know for 11 years day after day you know i was responsible for all those decisions we made and at the time i was also responsible in that seat for the self-directed brokerage recommendations that we made and you know some of the toughest discussions that you have are with people who are in a solutions chair who come up with an idea, and you as the CIO say, you know what, I'm just I'm not comfortable
0: with that. What's an example of one of those ideas? Usually it has the word leverage in it, right? Usually it's a <laughs>
1: leveraged LIBOR floater or leveraged accumulator notes, right, which are these Asian specialties where you promise to buy a certain amount of stock every month. And- If the stock drops, you have to buy more. And the leveraged accumulator is when the stock drops, you have to buy even more, right? So those kind of lottery tickets are popular in certain constituencies around the world. But, you know, as a global firm with a global reputation and with fiduciary mindset on, there were a lot of times when I said that we're we're just not going to do that. And I, I understand this puts
0: competitive pressure on you, but these things don't make sense. You effectively are in a seat where you have to be knowledgeable and informed about almost everything. Yes. What inputs came to you to allow you to sort of be well, informed thing, about those? The great
1: thing about working at a firm like J.P. Morgan is you can get whatever information you want. So I then and now read probably two thousand pages of research a week, and it, to some people it sounds like a lot, but the more you do anything, the quicker it is, right? I can plow through something quickly and immediately. Okay, is this is this have any new ideas, and what are they if they exist at all? If not, I'm just going to breeze through it and. You, you know, you, you read a lot of... I'm always in a pan of independent research, right? So I, I pay for independent research. Do you have a couple of favorites? Yeah, but I don't want to mention okay. them. And uh, <laughs> and also I read... You know, there's a, there's a handful of sell-side people that publish good stuff. I like to read whatever Jim Grant and Jeremy Grantham are having to say. I like reading Bridgewater publishes a daily note that's fairly technical, but which is a good read. So, and... Calling people within the firm, right? I mean, we have access to people that have visibility on credit conditions in the credit card business, and there's all sorts of information we can get being part of a big firm. As a digression on this question of where we get information from, and in the summer of 2008, we had tons and tons of clients that were saying to us, why can't you generate 11% returns with 2% vol like Bernie Madoff does? So after the 400th phone call like that, I said, fine, let's go and meet these people. So we met with some front guy, and we had this 19-page questionnaire that we go through as part of our due diligence process, and the very first one is, when can we meet the principal that's making the investment decisions? And they told us that we wouldn't be able to ever meet Bernie, and I said – in a moment of exaggeration, that's ridiculous. I'm the chief investment officer at J.P. Morgan. I've met the Pope, and you're telling me I can't meet Bernie Madoff? No, I've actually never met the Pope, but I just felt at the time it was the right way to express my concern that they wanted us to invest in something. And then we went back. We ran some numbers. We thought they didn't make sense, and then we never invested. I wrote some notes to the file, to like the audit files, like, well, you know, we went, and we couldn't meet the guy. We failed this test. The numbers didn't make sense to me everything blows up later and i don't want to go into too much detail but i ended up getting subpoenaed oh really by the government that wanted to know what i knew and when i knew it and why i knew it i told them exactly what happened and then we moved on
0: <laughs> wow let's talk a little bit about hedge funds particularly starting with the private bank seat and you mentioned yeah there's a there's a big tax difference
1: enormous not just little right i mean given the gap between earned income taxes on earned income and taxes on capital gains at times, taxation can be an enormous differentiator between the value proposition for hedge funds for endowments, foundations, ERISA plans, and individuals taxed at high brackets. So I've always thought that was a very important part of the asset allocation process. And so our allocations to hedge funds for different client types did reflect those issues. And then you have also the complexity that with Europe, you can have a European client that's got offshore money and they've got onshore money. And so it's very important to keep those differences in mind.
0: What are the other big differences that you implemented in terms of what an asset allocation might look like for a private client and then, you know, more the institutional business where you're sitting today?
1: I had a, there were a few things. Well, first I tried, not always successful. I tried to live by... The lessons I had learned a decade earlier, which is when things look really good, you need to be lightening up and but be aggressive taking risk after things collapse, and I've tried always to do that in terms of specific asset allocation, I was comfortable having our asset allocation process you know drive returns and discussing those. I never wanted our, my views on the dollar to be more than a five minute discussion, because if there's anything I've learned in my career. The quantitative models don't work. The qualitative models don't work. There is a random stochasticness associated with currency markets in a world where some are fixed, some are floating, and some are managed somewhere in between. And I was more than happy to take views on duration, on credit spreads, on PE multiples, on earnings growth and even on direction of commodity prices. But I've never seen sustainable efforts to reliably manage currency risk as a way to generate positive returns in portfolios.
0: And how about some of the differences, if there are any, in some of the other core asset classes? Long-only equities, private equity, real estate? The average balanced private client who's got
1: 50 or 100 million dollars or 200 million dollars is not that much different from an institutional client in terms of their long term risk and return objectives. One of the interesting differences in a world that's characterized by these violent episodes every decade or so, private clients are usually better situated to take advantage of, say, you know, guess what? Last night something terrible happened. There's a billion dollar portfolio for sale of Texas Munis that are usually priced at four, now they're seven but we have 48 hours like that's the kind of thing you can do with individuals that it's very hard to do with institutions that have investment committees and things like that. On the other hand, investment committees for institutional clients are much more religious about rebalancing. So uh, as equity as asset prices go up, they are religiously rebalancing back to normal and are also adding risk when markets go down, which is a much it's it's a healthier dynamic. Private clients tend to let it ride in both directions.
0: So I know a lot of your time now, you've shifted towards doing strategy work. Why don't you talk about how you got started writing? Sure. And then how that evolved? Well, I started writing,
1: I wrote a semi-annual publication from 2002 to 2005. But then once email became more commonly used, we decided to write a monthly piece. It's called Eye on the Market. I started writing it in 2005. And the idea was, we wanted to communicate to our clients, not in advance necessarily, but we wanted to communicate to them in real time what our investment views were. So that if you didn't have a chance to talk to your banker or your coverage person, I'm going to share with you, this is how we see the world. And it started out 100% focused on the portfolio construction of the portfolios that we were managing and what we were doing and why. And then in late 2007, early 2008, it changed. And I had to start communicating to people things that They never thought they'd see what is going on what are all these acronyms that are coming out of washington i've never heard of kaup thing right it sounds like a monster from a monster move beware of the kaup thing what is that well you know it's an icelandic bank that was a large participant in the derivatives mess and so all of a sudden we started having to dissect the intersection between markets and public policy and looking at the history of financial crises and how when governments recapitalize banks, the recovery in the equity markets and unemployment tend to happen more quickly than when governments simply buy their bad loans. And, and so the crisis changed the nature of the eye on the market forever. Then in 2012, after having been in the seat for 11 years, Mary and I talked about it and she wanted me to move up to a position that was basically a CIO position but for mostly focused on our institutional clients and since we don't take asset allocation generally discretion for them so that role is primarily a consultative strategy role and that's what i've been doing so i probably say 60 to 65% of my time is with institutional clients and the rest with a mixture of private clients and also you know i probably do 8 to 10 events for the investment bank each year
0: so if you're describing i on the market how do you distill what it is?
1: I have the freedom to write whatever I want. And, and to be clear, I have exercised that freedom on multiple occasions. It's primarily focused on the things that I think matter for investors and that matter to me. You know, I'm on our global investment committee in the asset management business. So everything about you know, stocks, bonds, commodities, alternatives, portfolio construction, and the things that affect them whether those things are domestic politics, geopolitics, the renewable energy revolution, the solvency of state and local governments. And there's a lot of derivative places you can go with that. You know, For example, the other day I looked at the history of midterm elections going back to 1910 and how you generally only lose a ton of seats if either employment is doing poorly or the equity markets are doing poorly. I think this is the first administration that's going to post a double bogey at a time of strong stock markets and strong employment with respect to the losses they sustain in the midterm election. So there's just lots of stuff that investors have to think about, and the eye on the market is free to go there. Yeah.
0: So if we dive into that political environment a little bit more, there's a set of data that you gathered that gives you kind of the base rate of what's supposed to happen. And then there, it's not hard to project and say, okay, this looks different.
1: What do you do with that? For the most part, the bedrock of our investment process is always profits, employment, and leading indicators. And one of the most important eye on the markets that we ever written was a couple of years ago, where we looked at, over the long run, what things should you be looking at that if they do well, you know, you'll be rewarded in the markets, and when they don't look good, the markets do poorly. And we looked at leading indicators, PMI surveys, profit forecasts, CEO confidence, capital spending, a geopolitical risk index, a domestic political risk index, an economic uncertainty index. and There were 11 or 12 factors, and the answer was clear. Traditional leading indicators related to profits, growth, and employment are the most important things to look at over the long run. So most of the time, you can be discounting geopolitics and domestic politics as factors to care about. And I have this famous set of charts that looks at every military conflict around the world. And with the exception of the 1972-73 Arab-Israeli conflict, which led to an oil embargo and a stagflation, almost every single military conflict was gone from the markets within three to four months, where the business cycle was at that point the primary driver of what was happening. So Geopolitics are usually among the worst things to use when you're establishing six, 12-month outlook for your investments. There are rare circumstances, and I think we're in one of them right now, where the corporate sector – I mean, margins are great, profits growth is probably organically 9% plus another 5 or 6% from the tax cuts, corporate CEO confidence and capital spending indicators look good. So, most of the true usual suspects are fine. But we, we've got to pay a lot of attention to what's happening in the White House. And I wrote a piece last week that looks at what is, for investors, what is Donald Trump? I mean, he's kind of a mixture of a bunch of different presidents. Andrew Jackson, with respect to you know political patronage and populism. JFK, with respect to the way that JFK went after the steel industry and single-handedly caused a 20% equity market correction in 1962. He's got a little bit of Ronald Reagan in him in terms of deregulation and tax cuts. He's got some George Bush in him in terms of unsustainably large fiscal deficits resulting from tax cuts. Then, of course, he's got a little Herbert Hoover in him in terms of tariffs, although the tariff thing is two sides of one coin. It's the biggest tariff increase in 50 years, but from the lowest tariff level in 100 years. So on paper, with the right side of your brain, it shouldn't matter but you know multiples are very delicate things and at a time when valuations are at the high end of their historical averages uh, i'm not surprised that some of these things that don't translate to lots of actual impact on profits and growth are having an impact on multiples yeah. you know and bottom line it's a game, a dangerous game the administration is playing to be disturbing some of these things at a time of high valuations.
0: Corporate profits are strong, unemployment's low, so the sort of corporate economy looks good in the U.S. Right. Something you just mentioned briefly, but I know you've done a lot of work on, is is the debt situation of the country and municipalities. Put those two things together for me. It's going
1: to be an interesting... Whoever has my job in in five to seven years is going to be living with this more or less full-time. And I don't know the date of reckoning on the federal debt that'll be the very last thing that happens because there are so many tools that can be used by the Fed to delay the day of reckoning. But absent intervention from the Fed or the Treasury, which I have a 95% confidence won't happen, we're going to have a continuously rising stream of restructurings at the municipal level over the next few years. And we've spent a lot of time on that. And I, we've done... Every couple of years, I do some analysis where we look at, and nobody does this because it's miserable. We lock our analysts in a basement within a window, no no windows in the room and everything with these 400-page con- CAFERS, which is an acronym for Consolidated Annual Financial Report. The GASB rules have finally changed so that these reports are not Pure garbage. GASB is the government equivalent of FASB. So it's the agency that sets the rules around disclosure for public sector entities. And drunks throw in IRS returns on the back of a brick that have more information on them than some of the state disclosures, let's say going back 10 years, from the perspective of an investor who wants to understand issues and risks around unfunded health care and pension obligations. Now, finally, those disclosures are good enough so that you can do some basic analysis. So we compute this thing called an iPod ratio. And so far, Apple has not sued me for copyright infringement. But it looks at the cost of interest, unfunded pension obligations, unfunded OPEB obligations, which is retiree healthcare and defined contribution obligations as a percentage of government revenue. And uh, we've done this at the state level, at the county level, and at the city level. And we use it as kind of a tripwire. And tweet So the good news is anyone that says there's a crisis at a national level, that's wrong. It's a very heterogeneous outcome. There's a handful of states that I think are just done, right? And it's just a question of time. And which are, which are
0: the ones that are at the, the worst end of the curve?
1: New Jersey and Illinois, obviously, and because the bulk of their unfunded obligations are pension-related. Places like Hawaii and Kentucky are a little different because there the retiree health care stuff plays a bigger role. But states, you know, municipalities can unilaterally make changes – to retiree health care obligations that are unpopular, but a judge will allow, or as unfunded pensions are inviolable. And one of the complexities is there is no legal document that says there's a cross-default as a bondholder between an unfunded pensioner and you, right? Just because a pension isn't paid is not a cross-defaultable issue for a bondholder. But guess what? In the real world, when pensioners lose money, bondholders lose more. And in the seven or eight restructurings that have happened so far at the municipal level, that's exactly what's happened. Every time there's been a pensioner and retiree healthcare write down, the bondholders lost more as a percentage of par. So we pay close attention to it and have used this whole series of analyses so that if a portfolio manager ever tries to buy one of the bonds that's coded red or orange, they
0: they get electrocuted. Right. (laughs) So if we look out at the other side of this is, is there a way out of the problem? On the municipal level, look. We examined every
1: outcome. We examined what if you eliminate COLA, cost of living increases. What if they become the best investors in the world? What, what, if these, what if these public DB plans, the ones that are in trouble, right, which is the subset, to be clear, what if some of them start earning 8%, 9%, 10% compounded? That still doesn't get you there. right. So ultimately, there's, the only question is, to what degree will bondholders in those entities be affected by the restructurings of pension and retiree health care obligations? And there are plenty of public plans at the state and local level that have the formula working fine. Employee contributions plus investment returns are funding payouts. So the notion that defined benefit is inconsistent with public plans isn't true because there's plenty of places where it's working. But there's a bunch of places where it's not working. And what tends to happen is when it goes off the rails, sometimes municipalities give up and at that point, they start not even making the annual contributions, and then once it gets that far behind, it's done.
0: So, if we then turn to the federal level, I know you've mentioned to me, what's the chart that everybody hates?
1: Well, my wife, who's now famous, right, because she's getting mentioned again, is we live in, in Brooklyn Heights, and you know the Park Slope Communist League is still an active organization <laughs> neighborhood, and Jacobin magazine is around the corner, which is a which is a Marxist publication. And so I'm a committed centrist and at times have different points of view from people that live in my neighborhood. And this was a bad idea, I'll admit. But at a birthday party that we had for my wife, I thought it would be a good idea when people started talking about deficits and taxation and how the tax code is not progressive enough. I trotted out some charts to show people that I had a lot of data to dispute that point of view. And the chart that everyone hates is a chart that looks over the last 40 years at the widening gap between government spending on entitlements versus government spending on discretionary spending, which is everything else and a whole bunch of programs that progressives really care about, having to do with education and science and infrastructure and everything else. And if you go back to nineteen seventy. After the entitlements programs – right? and by the way, the entitlements programs were desperately needed. In the the mid-60s, one-third of seniors in the United States lived below the poverty line. So the U.S. desperately needed an entitlement system. The problem is they created it like one of these monsters from Star Trek where there's no controls on it and starts to take over the ship. Because in 1970, the country spent the same amount on entitlement spending – as it did on all of the rest of the non-entitlement discretionary spending. And so that one-to-one ratio became one and a half to one, then two to one. And now it's three to one, and it's heading to five to one over the next decade. And so basically entitlements are massively squeezing out all of the good stuff that government does that helps generate jobs and growth and productivity. And that widening gap is a terrifying gap. And the reason people hate it is because, first of all, anyone that says that the entitlement system has been underfunded, you'll have to make sense of that when you look at this chart, because right now it looks like the entitlement system is the only thing that's being funded. And secondly, even if you do a Bernie Sanders-level tax plan, which is basically taxing everything that moves, it only brings that ratio from 5 to 1 back to maybe 3.5 or 3.8 to 1. So even massive... Democratic socialism-style taxation doesn't solve that problem. And so that's why people hate the chart. And Republicans hate it, too, because cutting taxes is simply making the whole problem worse. And I'm very disappointed in the unicorns of conservative Republican congressmen (laughs) who don't really exist. Simplifying the corporate tax code is a bipartisan issue. Jack Lew, who was Obama's Treasury Secretary, mentioned it. A global tax system... Uh, that makes the U.S. corporate sector more competitive has been the objective of a lot of administrations, including Obama's. You could have done that for four or $500 billion. And so they did that, and then they added a trillion dollars of personal tax cuts on the side. So what's amazing is that a tax bill that started out as something to rationalize the competitiveness of the U.S. corporate sector, they spent twice as much money on individual tax cuts. And so that that's disappointing as well. And a lot yeah. of the people got upset at the party, and then <laughs> I wrote about it, and it was called the shooting party, and you know, and someone was crying. And so in, in re- a birthday party is not the right place
0: to do this. <laughs> so just learned. as a warning to everybody
1: listening to this podcast.
0: And so with the U.S. as a data set of one, what does that chart look like in a lot of other countries?
1: It rhymes in some of the aging European societies but it doesn't quite look as bad because of the lack of constraints on the consumption of healthcare in the U.S. And so that's the thing that in the early 70s, they set up a system which really doesn't have any constraints on the consumption of healthcare, And so, of course, it's gone out of control. And so that's the added fuel in this gap between entitlement and non-entitlement spending. Look, a couple of years ago, they cut wind subsidies – not the solar ones, they kept those, but they let all the wind subsidies lapse And you could, at the federal level, and you can trace that back to the fact that there were budget constraints. So a lot of very progressive causes that have to do with the future are being cut because of the pressure from entitlement spending.
0: And your last big block of research is on energy. You just sent me your annual piece, and one of the first things that That startled me, it was just data I wasn't aware of, was how small of a percentage of global energy consumption comes from electricity. So when we talk about wind and solar, those are things addressing the use of fossil fuels, and it's less than 20% of all the use of energy. I started writing an energy paper seven years ago, and I decided that I needed
1: a technical advisor to do this really right. So I reached out To Vaclav Smil, who's one of the world's preeminent energy experts. He's Bill Gates' favorite author. And he's kind of a recluse. He lives, he's Czech. He moved from the Czech, well, Czechoslovakia at the time in the late 60s to Canada, and he lives in Winnipeg. Anyway, so I, I went up to visit him a couple of times, and he served as our technical advisor on this paper. And I find that a lot of our clients understand pharma, they understand real estate, they understand healthcare, they understand tech. But when it comes to energy, a lot of them don't really have a good basic understanding. And and you mentioned one good example. Most people, I think if you said, if the United States and the bulk of the world could shift the grid from primarily being based on coal nat- and natural gas, which is what it is today, to having a predominance of wind, solar hydroelectric and nuclear, would that solve the sea level rise, temperature, carbon emission problem? Most people would say, yeah, probably take a big chunk out of it. And the answer is no, because as you just mentioned, electricity is only 17 or 18% of all global energy consumption. What's the rest of it? It's direct consumption of fossil fuels by cars, trains, planes, homes, businesses, and the biggest consumer is industry. And there's this fascinating unexplored thing where I think electricity is maybe 10 or 15% of overall energy consumption by industry. And what are they doing with all the fossil fuels that they're using directly? Well, for process heat, for smelting and things like that, and for construction materials. And basically food, steel, concrete, chemicals, the thing that make modern society function. So decarbonizing transportation and decarbonizing industrial energy use... Is really where it's at if you're trying to get a handle on this problem. I mean, grid decarbonization is good, but people make a mistake by overinflating what the consequences of, of success
0: there would be. And so, how's that education process gone with your clients?
1: The energy paper is, I would say that about a third of the clients are really into it. You know what I mean? It, it, it's, when you do it right, it requires an investment. Of time and energy to read because there's charts on quads and gigajoules and I simplify it for a layperson audience. And I presented it in a number of different forums and I'm pleased with the way that it's going. And Vaclav has been invaluable to us in terms of providing guidance and
0: insight. So I want to touch on something we haven't talked about, which is social media. One of the people on your team told me that you are recently taken to LinkedIn to put your pieces out and share it in a a different way. I think I'm a fan of
1: technology as a way of getting our ideas and thoughts out there in a world where there's lots of ideas. LinkedIn is a weird place that's predominantly motivational cat posters like hang in there, baby. I mean, I'm I'm (laughs) a little cynical on and it's turned into Facebook a little bit. So I'm a little disappointed there. But it's a place where at least I can have some charts and a couple of paragraphs and say, okay, here's a simple thing you should think about. Yeah. Last week, I did a post on uh, Tesla, a story in pictures, which was kind of a brutal and cruel assessment of everything on at Tesla, including, by the way, a chart on CEO compensation that shows how much Elon Musk gets paid for a loss-making enterprise and his dots off the chart compared to the entirety of the S&P 100 and the Russell 1000 and the NASDAQ. But it's, it's okay. Twitter doesn't work for me because I can't speak in snippets. And so we're still exploring different ways of social media. They came to me recently with an idea that I liked and we may do. So suppose you're reading one of our pieces and there's a chart and you'd like some more context on it. It's going to have a little symbol next to it. And that symbol tells you if you're at home, You can say, Alexa, have Mike Sembolist explain this chart to me on page two. And all of a sudden my voice will appear on your Alexa device in the comfort of your own home and say, Well, you know, that chart is looking at primary energy consumption and inputs versus outputs, and this is what it means. So, you know, I we'll see. I'm not the earliest adopter of new technologies. I just got my first iPhone a year and a half ago, but There are smarter people on that around here who take care of that.
0: (laughs) You know, something popped into my head when you started talking about Tesla. So much of your writing is on important big picture issues. And then you you did put together a wonderful series of charts that effectively created a wonderful short case for Tesla, which is (laughs) a company. (laughs) Um, (laughs) How do you think about active management? Well, the short answer is, the very short answer is
1: this. It worked well in the 80s and the 90s whether because of a coincidence or not reg fd was a demarcation in history after which active management got harder and you know for people listening reg fd was a regulation that basically required companies not to selectively choose who they would make disclosures to and so you you couldn't have preferred asset managers that would get information for others did so reg fd was 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 a a bit of a dividing line in the history of things like the percentage of active managers that outperform. But I am sympathetic to the following. Since 1787, when the United States starts as a republic, there have been four periods when the cost of money is below the rate of inflation for an extended period. The Civil War, World War I, World War II, and the last 10 years. So just to understand how wacky of a monetary experiment this has been, we've now been a decade with negative real interest rates. In other words, cost of money below the rate of inflation. More than half of all the high-yield bonds issued in Italy have yields that are tighter than U.S. Treasuries. So the central banks have completely distorted, wrecked, transmogrified, screwed with, you pick your own verb, risk premium everywhere. And so differentiation between credit risks either in equity markets and real estate markets that's not really happening it's just it's starting to pop up again just now but for the last 10 years as an active manager you've been trying to extract value by picking A versus B in a market that no longer cares about the difference between A and B because they're being starved of yield from by the Fed and so I'm sympathetic to the notion that the last few years have been a really tough time for the proof statement of active management because of the compression of PE multiples and yields and spreads and correlations and everything. So the industry basically has three years starting now to prove it can do it. If three years from now, we still have meeting an active manager below the ETF, the story will ride itself. With that, let's turn to some closing questions. What was your favorite sports moment? My favorite sports moment. Well, my favorite sports moment is... The best sports moment of the last, you know, 100 years, which was game six of the 1986 World Series when the Mets came back and beat the Red Sox. So that was my favorite sports moment. And how about you in your own career? Well, let's let's broaden the definition of sports a little bit. I am an active kayak fisherman. And, you know, so I will kayak two to three miles offshore and fish for pelagic species. And, Last year, I caught a six-foot sailfish on a kayak three miles off of Delray Beach in Florida. So that counts because that's a... This is a young man in the sea moment. How long did that take to reel it in? You can't leave it out there for too long or it attracts sharks. So you've got to run it down reasonably quickly. But, you know, the whole thing probably takes 20 minutes. Wow. Cool. For everybody out there, I have an Instagram account of just my fishing adventures.
0: So... What's you know. the handle for that for people who it's want It's my follow? name. Oh, it's there we go. Name. Okay. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: That there are times in life when you have to do things that you don't want to do, but you got to do it. And you know, having to do with supporting family members even beyond the point when you would otherwise want to and you know, maintaining those relationships and family bonds
0: in the face of aggravation and stuff like that. Of the 2,000-something pages you're reading a week of all this stuff that you digest, what information do you read that you get a lot out of that other people might not know about? That's a hard one. I think it's the volume of it
1: that allows me to kind of draw patterns and insights together and then sit down and do my own work. There's a lot of discussion right now about what happens if the Fed raises interest rates and what's the impact on the Treasury. The team right outside the office right now is we're building some models to look at interest to GDP ratios uh, based on the speed with which these higher interest rates impact cost to government. So there's not a lot of things I read
0: that other people wouldn't. So if you are sitting back in your rocking chair with your wife with no conflicts about parties or jobs in your waning years, and you look back at the most difficult decisions you have to make, what was one of the most difficult ones that you made that you feel great about today?
1: A lot of the things that you do in life, time changes how they look. And it's like a vacation that you take where you, you have some fun, but you get horribly sick, and then several years later, you only remember how much fun the trip was. The hardest decision was... When I had when I had to, I don't know how to phrase this, but I, I, I'm a big believer in the hierarchy of institutions, but I I didn't adhere to it. Once there was a, there was a bad actor in the organization that, at a large meeting to make a major decision as to who was going to manage a certain business going forward, there was a bad actor in the organization that presented false information to a large group. I was a VP or junior sitting in the back row at the time, and, and I recognized that the information was false. and made no sense. But the entire committee had no way of knowing that that was the case. And, and a major business decision was made based on the information that was presented at this meeting at very senior levels. And I wasn't sure what to do about that because I knew that the information presented was false. And I put together a dossier. I mean, this is probably 15 to 18 years ago. I still have it. It's got charts and graphs and dots and all sorts of stuff. And I gave it to the person I worked for. And I said, what should we do with this? And the person I worked for felt, this is not the way to handle it. We're not going to just dump this on everybody. and And they just felt that it was the wrong way to handle it. And for the first time in my life, and I got a lot of help for it, I I didn't want to work for an organization where where important decisions were made like that. So I made 20 copies, came in one day at 6 in the morning, and left them on everyone's chair. And what happened? Within a month, the decision was reversed, and some people were gone. And I got a lot of help for that. I feel good about it today, but I also recognize the problematic nature of solving problems like that in large organizations. I I just, I didn't feel there were a lot of easy answers. And, you know, the younger
0: version of me handled it like that. How do you think you would handle the same thing today? I hate to tell you this, but I would do the same. (laughs) (laughs) All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? Sometimes it only takes small gestures
1: to make stressful situations less stressful. And I've definitely learned that over the last, let's say, 10 years, but I'm 56. I wish I knew that when I was 36 and starting to run teams and manage people. That sometimes it only takes very small gestures to to get people through difficult times.
0: What are the small gestures that come to your head as things that really worked? Sometimes... Just an email, or asking
1: a very senior person, "Hey, you know what? Somebody just lost a bunch of money today. Can you give them a pep talk? Can you send an email tell them it's okay? We need we need investors to be able to take risk, and this risk was well founded, but it didn't work. And looking back, we would do it again. It just didn't work out. Can you call them? I don't want them having this spiral. Little things like that, and you learn those important empathy tools as you grow older." And I I wish I I had more of them when I was younger. Mike, thanks
0: so much. Really enjoyed it. You're welcome. Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too. So I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com and join the mailing list.